Turn with me, please, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. For the third time today, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong unto us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. Let me give you a few words from Galatians 4 and exhort you to appreciate and to seek and to act upon conviction that we might be better children of our Father which is in heaven. I read to you Galatians 4, 11, down through verse 20. Galatians 4, 11. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, Be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that, if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you, that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Amen and amen. The Apostle Paul, concerned about the churches of Galatia, because they had been turned away from him and his gospel by false teachers that were Jewish legalists, that were trying to exclude them from Paul's authority and take them away from Paul's gospel, that they in turn would be zealously affected toward them. They were church stealers wanting to take Paul's saints. He spoke the gospel to them at the first, and they knew they were blessed by hearing the gospel from him. But now that they had been established as churches, these false teachers were seeking to turn these churches away from Paul and toward them and their false gospel, which is to fall from grace, as chapter 5 goes on to describe. Each time we open God's Word, in private or in public, we should be humbled and prepared to have God speak to us by His Word. I want the 18th verse. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. He is playing on words, our brother Paul is, because in the 17th verse he says of these false teachers, they zealously affect you. They are putting forth all their diligent efforts in order to influence and move you, but not well. They are not trying to influence and move you toward good things. They are trying to influence and move you away from the gospel of grace to a Jewish gospel that involves circumcision and keeping the law for justification. 
And they're doing it so that they might exclude you from the company of churches that I have started, that you might zealously affect them, that they can have a benefit of you being their followers instead of being followers of me. Church stealers. But Paul's playing on the word affect. Notice it's twice in verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. Influence, move, touch, and be taken up with them. They are showing a great deal of interest in you in order to exclude you from the churches of the apostles that you can in turn influence and be consumed and interested in their things. And he just cuts all that off by saying, but it is good. They're not doing good, but this is good. And when God says something is good, do you know what we ought to do? We ought to listen with both ears. God is about to say something that is good through his apostle. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Here is something good to be zealously affected. Zeal is intense ardor. It is passionate eagerness. It is enthusiasm displayed in action. Zeal is to be passionate about something. And to be affected is to be moved, touched, consumed, interested in, and seeking after something. And Paul tells us it's a good thing, it's good, when we are zealously affected, when we are passionately pursuing, when we are eagerly and enthusiastically convicted, always in a good thing. Now the good thing happens to be Paul's gospel that he's referring to most directly. But anything the Bible tells us that we ought to be doing, we ought to do it with zeal. And it's a good, it's good when we do it with zeal. And we should do it always. We shouldn't have zeal for an hour on Sunday mornings. We shouldn't have zeal once a month when the pastor preaches something that really moves me. The apostle said, even when I'm not there, as he closes out this 18th verse, it's good for you to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. Paul didn't have email, and Paul didn't have a website. Do you know how hard it was for Paul, of course he trusted God, to leave these churches knowing that there were church stealers coming along behind him? That's why he said always, because your blessedness and your zeal was very evident in the beginning when I preached the gospel to you first. I was the first one. I converted you, and now I have to form Christ in you again. He's not going to regenerate them again. He's going to convert them again because they've been converted away. They've been bewitched, as this particular epistle describes those poor church members of the churches of Galatia. But I don't want those other verses. I want verse 18 because I want to ask you, do you appreciate conviction? Conviction as in some of the songs we just sang, is God's love coming after us, turning our hearts toward Him. Conviction is when He puts in our hearts, He draws us by putting in our hearts affection for Him. When He puts in our hearts a desire to repent. That is conviction. And when God gives us conviction, we had better appreciate it, and we better act upon it. That's one side. The other side is, do you pray for conviction? Do you prepare 
for conviction? Do you work for conviction? Because conviction is something you can seek from the Lord and He will give it. And I'm going to show you how in the few minutes that we need for this subject. I want you to love conviction. And if you don't have conviction, to search your heart and your soul and to go to the Lord seeking it, because without conviction, you don't have evidence of being one of His. Because if He loves you, He's going to convict you. He is not going to let you continue in a course of sin. He's going to draw you back to Himself. He's not going to leave you in a situation where you feel distant from the Lord. He's going to come after you if you're His and you have a heart that is sincere. We want conviction. And I want you convicted. There has been conviction in this church in recent weeks. Over the last couple of months. Do not let that conviction dissipate. It will just disappear. Because the world has so much input to our lives and to our souls between Sundays. You have to feed yourself with the Word of God. You have to stir it up with godly music. You need to stir it up with meditation upon what I ought to be doing with my life. Before the Lord, you should be asking God, don't let this conviction leave me. Keep me convicted. Because I want you to be zealously affected. Because the verse tells me it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And there is nothing better than the Word of God. Now I know full well that the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9.10 that whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor labor, nor device in the grave where we're all going. That, that theme there is so light compared to this theme. Right. All Solomon is saying is, life is short, so work hard on the job, because you're soon going to be in a hospital bed and then in the grave, and you won't get to work. So while you get to work, work hard. That is light compared to this. Because the good thing being described here is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not working on the job. We want to do both. And we want to understand how both are said. But I want you to be zealously affected toward spiritual things and toward conviction. Don't let it go away. Keep yourself around convicted people. Keep yourself in the Word of God. Pray for it. Prepare for it. Or it will slip away. And you won't be convicted and you'll need to be reconvicted. But what if the Lord doesn't reconvict you for a while? Because you're not praying for it, you're not preparing for it. Then you'll wander through day after day, distant from the Lord, not stirred up, not zealously affected for a good thing. And you'll have slipped away like these Galatians. Just understand who their pastor was. Had been. Paul. Now if you can be converted by Paul, and then you can slip away, We know that we've got serious trouble in this church. Because you don't have Paul as your pastor. But I'll tell you what, we have the same Holy Spirit that is able to help and serve those who want to remain convicted and who want to be zealously affected. Of course, I want these words. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Do you love conviction? To be told thou shalt not covet and to realize it exposes something in your life. Did I hit anyone today with thou shalt not covet? Paul and I were speaking at break time that the Holy Spirit directed Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
to choose thou shalt not covet because none of us can get past it. It is so pervasive in so many different ways we can be guilty of being covetous. And I want you to be zealously affected. I I don't want you to be convicted and to talk about your conviction and to share your conviction and to know you're convicted without it bringing forth some zealous action. Make some changes. When you're convicted about something, make a change. Do you know what Jesus would say about the conviction that should come from hearing? Whoso looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Do you know what Jesus said in the next two verses? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from thee. That is something dear and precious to us. And you might have something dear and precious in your life. This is what it means. It doesn't mean to literally pluck out your eye. It means you may have something dear and precious in you that is a source of temptation. It may be a job. It may be a friend. It may be a relationship. It may be a periodical that you read. It may be an internet website. It may be a movie. It may be a television. Pluck it out and throw it away. Cut it off. Get rid of that relationship. Get rid of that source of temptation. Next verse. Cut off your right hand. I'm not here in Galatians 4. I'm in Matthew 5. Sorry for telling you to look down. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. Our right hand is very practical to us. We we consider it very useful. We consider it quite necessary to have our right hands along with our right eyes. But if it's a source of temptation, get rid of it. Now that's conviction. That's how Jesus Christ preached. Now that's pretty powerful language. If you've got something in your life, get rid of it. You don't need it. You could operate with one left eye, and you could operate with a left hand. Your left hand will pick up and make up for the loss of your right hand, and so will your left eye. And it's better to enter into life with one eye and one hand than to take both eyes and hands to hell, is what Jesus would say. Don't let that conviction go away. The measure of a Christian is how much he is moved, influenced, impressed, and interested in and touched by and taken up with the things of the gospel or by the things of his life and of the world. What is your situation? How zealously affected are you by the world? What are you zealously affected towards? Your education? Bodily exercise? Family? Pleasure? What is it? Or are you zealously affected that you want to be a fruit-bearing Christian? You want to be a loving and doting wife, a godly, praying, spiritually-minded mother, and change the world by your family. I'm not going to preach everything that I've preached in my entire ministry. Although everything I've preached in my entire ministry should be before your minds in some way, shape, or form, and everything God's Word has to say. I have preached to you recently about relationships. Relationships should be very important to you because God said they were very important to you. And as I went through a few weak, feeble points about relationships, that it should have been sufficient to convict you about relationships. And my whole point is, we, that's you and me, you and I, should have gone out of this place and made changes. We can't just hear it. Say, yeah, there's some, boy, if everybody took, if everybody paid attention to that, things could be better. I know people that I hope were listening. No! We need to take it personally. And we need to go home and be convicted and make changes. If you don't make changes, you're, 
You're wasting conviction. And if you're wasting conviction, you're squandering God's love for you. Because conviction is God loving you by not letting you have it your foolish, wicked way. But stirring you up to do it His way. How much do you get convicted by God's Word? How much do I get convicted by it? This is revival. This isn't some evangelist coming Monday through Friday for a little 30-minute entertaining sermon by telling new stories that you haven't heard before because he's not your week-in, week-out pastor. This is real revival. This is seeking to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and by God's Word. And I want every commandment. You read Exodus 20 last night. Thou shalt not covet. We read Romans 7. There it is again. Thou shalt not covet. I mentioned and quoted Colossians 3, 5. The covetousness is idolatry. That should convict us. Do I play around in my head with any thoughts that are ungodly? Do I fantasize? Do I desire what I don't have? Does it lead me to discontentment with my life? Do I think about doing something ungodly? I want to tell you how far it goes. You may see a nice car. You know, I mentioned one. Oh, Chrysler 300, SRT8 version. It's got 425 horsepower. Anyway. 4.7 seconds, 0 to 60. You know, yeah. Okay. We see something and we admire it. But as soon as you start desiring it to where, well, at the rate I'm saving, by the time I was to save my money up, Chrysler wouldn't even be producing this car, and they'd all be in the junkyard. So, how about if for 18 months I don't save, and I really pile the money up so I can get a Chrysler while they're still making them? You've just sinned. Your admire has gone to a sin. Because what... See, all of you grinned at me this morning when I said covetousness can lead you to steal. And you all grinned and said, I, I haven't hotwired a car in two or three years. I haven't been to midnight auto sales in a long time. Because you're, you're justifying yourself. So I'm trying to get it right down to where it belongs. For you not to save money because you want to accumulate funds to buy yourself a toy, you've sinned against Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 30. You say, well... You know, I'm going to get this car and I'm going to be very happy. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to make more money and I'm going to give to the Lord. Then I think, I think I'll just cut back on my giving so that I can get this thing out of the way. Brethren, it's never going to get out of the way. There's going to be another thing that comes in the way. And it's these kind of choices that are so close to home that you should be able to understand them. It's what thou shalt not covet should do to us. It should turn a searchlight on inside of us to find every little bit of compromise for things that we don't have and discontentment with the things we do have. If you would just listen to me right now and listen to God's Word on this point, your wife will go from a 5 to a 9 or a 10 before I can say amen. Say, so what do you mean by a 5? I mean on a scale of 1 to 10, ladies. One being a dog, a real bad dog, and ten being a butte, a beautiful woman. Your wife will rise, and all you have to do is let the searchlight of God's searchlight, thou shalt not covet, come right into your heart. The transportation you complain about, the parents you don't like, 
the house that you wish was better? Oh, my, you poor thing. Nothing's ever going to be perfect in this world, but I'm telling you, the package that God's given everyone that's in my eyesight is pretty close to perfect. And you can choose to be content with it all. And we cannot... That's the searchlight of thou shalt not covet. Do you know how many hours we could... If we had a give and take right now, and, and somebody was a secretary to write down all the thoughts about covetousness, do you know that, that those few words, thou shalt not covet, are huge? Huge! They're good. They're just. They're holy. They're wonderful. They'll keep you from so many sins. At break time, we were talking about the fact that when Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. Do you remember? Did it lead to any other sins? Oh! Did it cause him... First of all, he breaks the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Then he tries to extort it out of Naboth. He tries to get his neighbor to sin against the inheritance laws of Israel. Are you all with me? Then did he have to hire... Did Jezebel hire... Some men that would break the commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness? To get him accused of being guilty of a capital crime? Then they had him put to death, so that's breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Where did that all start? With a thought in Ahab's mind that he wanted that vineyard. And it led to lust and craving it until he was discontent. Remember the little baby? He wouldn't even take bread. He laid in his bed and put his face to the wall and he wouldn't even eat because he was so upset for not having Naboth's vineyard. So Jezebel, his wicked wife, went and got it for him by breaking those other commandments. This is the effect of sin. And all of, we could talk about thou shalt not covet, but it's the whole Bible that we want to be zealously affected by when we come into God's house and we hear his word at home when we read it. When we read something, we want to be zealously affected. We want to be moved, touched, impressed, influenced and interested and taken up with the things of God's Word with zeal. It's good. If you don't do it, it's bad. God says it's good. He blesses those that do good. And He is against those that do not do good when He teaches it. To know good and to not to do it is sin. My simple point is I want you to be zealously affected and convicted. Our God demands your best. Did he say he's a great king in Malachi 1.14 and cursed be the man who makes a promise to God and then brings something less than the best? Are you familiar with that? I'm not going to turn you for the sake of time. Malachi 1.14 I am a great God and I am worshipped by the heathen. Don't you dare promise me something and give me less than your best. And you may say, I've never promised God anything. You've promised Him everything. Every one of you that have been baptized have promised God, the Creator, God, Jehovah, through Jesus Christ, everything. What do you do with what you hear? Do you miss it, lose it, compromise it, or do you exploit it? Do you turn it to your advantage and do what it says and do what it says with zeal? When you hear something about relationships in the last couple of weeks, when you hear something about David compared to Joab, does that find a problems in your life where you're more like Joab than David and you want to root those out. You want to turn each cursed idol out as we prayed in one of our songs. Look at Luke chapter 8 with me. Zealously affected always in a good thing. Are you zealously affected or have you become kind of complacent about your Christianity? There's so much you can be doing. There's so much that you can be doing to make your life count. You say, I'm a wife and a mother. 
How does my life count? Change the world. Be a woman of prayer. Be like Hannah. She changed the course of that nation because they got Samuel instead of Eli. There is no role too small. There's a God in heaven, and He hears the prayer of zealously affected people. To be a wonderful wife. When you hear me mention anything about being a wife, do you go home and make a change? Does your husband have difficulty staying on the road getting from this church to home? Do you change something? Do you say something to him? Do you bring tears to his eyes? What if we just hear the noise out of the pulpit and read the little black marks on our white cream-colored pages and don't do anything? And what if we just barely do things? And what if we don't do them with zeal? We're in trouble. We're in trouble. He's given us too much. He's given it to us. He preaches it to us. He convicts our hearts. And we let it dissipate. We're in trouble. Your children are going to do that as they grow up. Little hypocrites always come from watching big ones. Children that are not zealously affected learn that by watching parents that are not zealously affected. Look at Luke 8.18. Look, Listen to these words. Are they in the red writing in your red letter edition Bibles? Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. It fits just perfectly with Galatians 4.18. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. This is the parable of the sower. This is the word of God coming to you in reading or in preaching. You can be a wayside hearer, and you don't pay enough attention, you're daydreaming, and so the word of God is snatched away by the devil himself, and you, it never lasts. You don't even really hear it. There's no conviction whatsoever. You might be a thorny ground hearer. You hear the word. There's some conviction. You respond with joy. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to change that. But then you go home. You turn the television on. You turn the stinking radio on on your way home. You pick up a magazine. You call somebody. You let a worldly friend into your life. And they take you down by distracting you with the cares of this world and the riches of this world. And you get enamored with your job again on Monday morning. And you're gone. And you don't bear any fruit to perfection. Or you're a stony ground hearer. You, res- you respond with joy. You hear it. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to make a change in my life. Then you get a little bit of persecution. A little bit of difficulty. A little bit of opposition. You don't bear any fruit to perfection. And there are a few that are called good ground. They hear the word of God and they rejoice and they make changes that day. They turn that conviction into action. And they bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some a hundredfold. And Jesus said to his apostles... Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. He did not say, observe how men hear the gospel. He was talking to them. The apostles were capable of all four kinds of responses to the preaching of God's word. That means you're capable of all four. I'm capable of all four. Do you ever get distracted with the things of this life so that you don't bear the fruit that you could? 
Does a little bit of opposition discourage you? You love your husband. You go home and you say, I'm going to do what he said. I'm going to bring a tear to his eye by telling him how much I love him and all the things that I admire about him. And he doesn't get a tear in his eye. Instead, he asks you why your gravy does not taste as good as his mother's gravy. Now that's opposition. And then you get discouraged. Now I'll make, you know, I've really stooped weakly in that pitiful illustration because you aren't going to face real opposition. But let's, an example of it. You make a commitment. I am not going to celebrate the holy days of the Roman Catholic Church. And you have family members say, well, if you're going to be that anti-Christ and that unchristian, then I don't want anything to do with you. Now that's real opposition. And that's where some Christians give up. They'd rather have family than Jesus. What kind of ground are you? That, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. On behalf of God to you, I am scared for this congregation, for my family, and for me. How do we hear the word of God? We have been given too much. When we hear something, we better make changes in our lives. It is not enough to believe it. It is not enough to say amen. It is not enough to be convicted. It needs to lead to action. And that action, by the nature of conviction, requires change. You can't keep doing the same things. Because conviction means you're doing something wrong and God's Word has shined its light upon it. You've got to change something. James chapter 1. Do you, do you understand Luke 8? The parable of the sower. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. We are capable of hearing all four ways every time we read the Bible, every time we hear the Bible preached. James chapter 1. A cross-reference passage that describes the hearers and doers of God's Word. Do you know that the book that you hold in your hands, even though you are elect, justified, regenerated, converted, and glorified past tense, as far as God is concerned, is able to save your souls? It is still able to save your souls. The pages of the book that you just turned. Verse 21, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. The word of God has been engrafted into your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you should receive it because it's able to save your souls by the hearing and doing of what it says. Verse 22, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If you love the Bible, if you loved hearing me remind you about its glory from Psalm 19, if you wanted to hear it, but all you do is hear it, and you go home and everything is status quo, you are deceiving yourself. Because the Bible has said something to you today. We can't open it without its light finding some problem or something in our lives where we're compromising. Verse 23, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, this is how a man deceives himself. He is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He's looking in the mirror in the morning. He beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He looks in the mirror, he sees he's got problems, make those problems any facial problem that you want to, 
He looks in the mirror, then he just goes his way and forgets that he needed to correct something on his face. He needed to comb his hair. He needed to brush his teeth. He needed to wipe his wife's lipstick off his cheeks. Whatever he needed to do, he should have done it. But he goes his way and forgets. We look into the mirror of God's Word. It says, Thou shalt not covet. We think upon that with the pastor's help of expanding it a little bit beyond the four words. And it shines upon us and tells us that we are guilty of covetousness in some part in our lives. But then we just walk out of here and go our way and forget about it. You're deceiving yourself. If you think by hearing the truth, by believing the truth, and by being convicted while you are here that you have done something noble and good, you haven't. The only value is to get out of here and to make a change. Verse 25, but, I love the buts of the Bible, those inspired disjunctives that tell me there's another kind of a man, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's the man looking in the mirror of God's word, it's called here the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, remember, it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. He continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed, in the keeping of which there is great reward. Psalm 19, verses James 1.25. The blessing is upon us changing. What can we go home and change today? Pick something. Is there a child you could love more? Is there a spouse you could love better? Could you read your Bible more faithfully? Have you been negligent in praying? Go home and do those things. Don't, don't hear me and think, I should. I should, I should read and pray more. No. Go read and pray more. If you hear it, it's a blessing. If you have God's Word, it's a blessing. If you're convicted enough to know that you should change, that you really aren't a praying and reading person like you should be, all those are good. But I want to tell you something. They bring a, big, a bigger burden upon you if you don't do them. If you go home and don't do them, Luke 12, 47 through 48 tells us the servant that knew his master's will and did not do it is worthy to be beaten with many stripes. That's why I'm preaching this. I've heard about conviction. I've preached to convict. The Lord's convicted. I'm concerned about relationships, our families. What can you go home and do differently? You say, I haven't held hands with my wife driving home in a long time. Then do it today. Get started. Say, I haven't read my Bible in three days. Then go home and read it today. The Lord Jehovah demands our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. He doesn't want us to share it with anyone. He wants us to be zealously affected. You know, the Bible teaches you to give, doesn't it? I'm just using this as an example. I hardly ever preach on giving. Most of you are very faithful about giving. It's ridiculous. It's wonderful. It's glorious. Forgive my R word. I just meant that it's unusual. There's no pastor in the world that every couple of years has to ask for a 25% paid reduction. It's ridiculous. It's glorious. But I want to, I want to remind you about giving. There's different ways you can give. Can you give grudgingly? Can you give inconsistently? Can you give cheerfully? What does it say about a cheerful giver? 
I want the words. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. What does that do to you, to hear that the Lord loves something? Does that get you excited? That's conviction. That's to be influenced or impressed, touched or moved towards something. Now, if the Lord loves something, I want to do that. Because if the Lord loves something that I'm doing, that I'm growing in favor with God, and He is going to smile upon me and bless me, and I'm going to please Him as an obedient child. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. Does that get you excited? To be zealously affected about your giving. It ought to be your favorite check of the week, the favorite check of the month, because you're giving it to the Lord, and the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You should get excited about that check. I mean, let everyone else get the crumbs. Let Duke Power, Lawrence Electric, and everyone else get the crumbs, but the Lord gets it off the top, and I love giving it to the Lord. Lord, I know I'm not making a million a month to give you a hundred K a month, but I'm, I'm giving it to you, and I love giving it to you. Take it and use it. I love you. This is easy. I love doing this. I'm cheerful about it. He loves a cheerful giver. You say, well, I give. I'm just not very cheerful. Well, then get zealously affected by that little rabbit trail. The Christian life is like top echelon sports. You're competing against the world's best. And do you know what the Bible wants you to know about that? Second place is losing. Second place is losing. College football teams are going to play for a national championship. How long will people remember the team that loses? They won't even remember the one that wins because it's all vanity. But you know what? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, They that run, run all, but one wins. So run that ye may obtain. Not a corruptible crown, but an incorruptible crown. That is to be zealously affected. Right. Who's the most cheerful giver in this church? I didn't say who gives the most. Jesus Jesus found the best giver he ever met was a widow casting in two mites because it was all her living. has nothing to do with amount. has quite a bit to do with percentage. But it has most to do with spirit. Who is the most cheerful giver in the church? Did, do you know that emulation, it's one of those words I mentioned this morning that isn't preached very often, means to try to equal or excel someone in something. Do you know that emulation is good when it comes to godliness? Paul in Romans chapter 11 wanted to provoke the Jews to emulation. He wanted to show converted Gentiles worshiping God according to the fulfilled scriptures and hope that it might provoke some of those Jews to emulation to want to be like those Gentiles. So that's why I'm speaking the way I am. I'm not talking about vainglory. I'm talking about who's the most cheerful. Who's Arana in here? Who's David in here? that gathered with all his might. David was so excited about building that temple. Did David get discouraged when he ran into a little opposition? When he said some nice things to his husband and his husband didn't shed a tear? Do you know what his nice thing was? Lord, I want to build you a temple. Do you know how the Lord didn't shed a tear? The Lord said, I'm not going to let you build a temple. That's some opposition, wouldn't you say? Well, fine. If that's the way you want it, then I'll just keep on being an average Christian here in Israel. What did he say? Okay, you didn't say I couldn't pay for it. I'll let Solomon get all the attention for building it. I'll pay for it. Is that a cheerful giver? Amen. That zealously affected. 
Do you get a sermon like this about every six months from me? Have you ever heard he deserves better than that? Have you ever heard exceeding magnifical? Have you ever heard the heart of David? Do I ever preach this? But I fear for all of us. He's given us too much. We need to be zealously affected. And it's good to be zealously affected always. Not temporarily. Not inconsistently. Not once in a while in a good thing. Lord, help us to this end. Do you know what the Bible says about my Savior Jesus Christ? That when he came from Nazareth in John chapter 2, and he came to the temple in Jerusalem and saw that they had corrupted his worship with a Starbucks, I'm just using that as a modern example, that they were making money there, and those money changers had turned that house in, his house of prayer into a den of thieves. He sat down and made himself a scourge of cords, and he drove them out and kicked over their tables. And do you know what? The Lord, by the Holy Spirit, gave his apostles understanding to look at that and see from Psalm 69 this fulfillment. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Amen. Listen to those words. That is being zealously affected. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that your love for this church? Is that your love for the Lord Jesus Christ that eats me up? I want to do better. I want the whole church to do better. I'm going to be a prayer warrior. I want my family to do better. I want my children to do better. Oh, what an example. Is, there's no other example that can compare. Even though Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all. Is that zealously affected? He said, I was not a whit behind the very chiefest of the apostles. Was he bragging when he said that? He was boasting in God's grace in his life that he wasn't going to go let it go to waste. He was going to hit the ground running. You know, when the Lord picked him up on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul said, Who art thou? Lord, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. What wilt thou have me to do? He turned him around and put him back down and his legs were churning. His legs were churning and burning. You can think of any little motto you need to think about. He felt the need for speed. And he went to Damascus and as soon as he had some strength by getting food, his eyesight opened up. He was in the synagogue preaching Christ. Right. He never stopped, did he? Never retired. He just went at it full steam. Where do we find him at the end of his life? Blessing God in the prisons of Rome. There are those who hear the word of God and do nothing. They're either not born again or they're blinded belly worshipers. There are those who begrudge any change. And begrudging change in your life never bears fruit or pleases God. There are those with average compliance. Something is preached. There is marginal improvement made. They give a modest effort for a short while. Then there are those who respond with joyful diligence. They review what was taught. They hold themselves accountable. They are going to change and they are going to keep that change. And they bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And God is behind them, pushing them along, helping them, encouraging them and blessing them in the effort. Psalm 119. Please turn with it. Turn with me to it, please. Psalm 119. I'm almost done. 119, verse 32. Look at this verse. Do you pray for it? Do you pray for God to convict you and to make you zealously affected? Look at this verse. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run. I will run 
I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. To enlarge your heart is a Bible expression to give you more love, more affection, more conviction. Lord, if you'll increase my love, my affection, my conviction, I will run in the way of your commandments. This is a prayer. I'm telling you, Psalm 119, if you, if you don't know where to read sometime, open this chapter. Take a verse like that, don't look anywhere else, get down on your knees and pray that prayer. If you'll enlarge my heart, if you'll quicken, does he, how many times does he say in this Psalm, quicken thou me according to thy word? That means make me alive again. Enlarge my heart. My heart just feels kind of dried up. It's small. My affection isn't what it used to be. I can remember times in my life where I loved the Lord more. Enlarge my heart, and I'll run in the way of your commandments. I'll run to meet my husband at break time. I'll run to teach my children how to pray. I'll run to be a cheerful giver. I'll run. Enlarge my heart. It's why we come into this house. We come in here to have our hearts enlarged. I pray for it. We pray for it. Here and elsewhere. Do you listen for it? And when you get it, do you bring it to the pavement and do you run? Or do you know that you are convicted? You know that you should. You tell yourself a little later, I'll eventually get to it. Lord, help us to do better than that. Much better than that. Turn to Ezekiel 33. And you can get rid of me for the day. Ezekiel 33. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were two God-ordained and called men that had important ministries. You can tell by the length of the books in the Bible that bear their names. And God told them at the beginning of their ministries that few to none would listen and obey. I want change. The Lord wants change. It doesn't matter what I want. I only want it as His servant. I want to see changes in marriages and changes in families, changes in zeal. That's why this simple little sermon. Now listen to me read some verses to you. I could read the whole chapter, but I'll start at verse 28. Here's God's warning by Ezekiel. And I'm telling you that if we squander God's Word, God's preaching, God's conviction and we don't have change and action in our lives, God is going to come against us. He will take away his candlestick. He will reduce this church to a shell. It will be naked, blind, poor, and terrible. And we will stand before him and give an account that no one in here wants to give an account for. Listen to the words of Ezekiel's warning. I... Verse 28, for I will lay the land most desolate, and the pomp of her strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be desolate, that none shall pass through. Then shall they know that I am the Lord, when I have laid the land most desolate, because of all their abominations which they have committed. Also, thou son of man, The children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, 
and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear, for they hear thy words, but they do them not. And when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come. Then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. When God laid Judah desolate, they learned two things. The Lord God had done it according to his promises for their abominations. Second, that Ezekiel had been a faithful prophet in warning them of it. I warn every one of you for the sake of this church, for your marriages, for your children, your families, our candlestick, and for us to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give a confident, joyful answer to him. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Search your hearts and add some zeal and some affection to what you ought to be doing. What does that mean? What does my whole sermon mean? Change. Amen.